Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance take you beyond the numbers and hype right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today we're discussing a new report from the CIO of UBS Global Wealth Management which asks, why are LGBTQ plus investors different? The stark reality is that these communities of investors may need to invest differently simply because true legal and social equality just doesn't exist anywhere in the world. So how should LGBTQ plus people build investment strategies to help meet their goals? We'll explore a number of factors like family, job security, urban living and investing with values in mind and consider the implications for investors. Let's start with our regular commentator on this theme and a great friend of the show, Paul Donovan, Paul's chief economist in UBS Global Wealth Management. Thanks for being with us as ever. Paul Donovan, just to kick off, and I guess the first question here is, even in an admittedly imperfect world, why should LGBTQ plus investors have to even think about investing differently from anyone else? It seems a a sad indictment of the times in which we live. Well, it is, I'm afraid, because... If we look around the world today, obviously, in many, many countries, you don't have legal equality for the LGBTQ plus community. And even where you have legal equality, there isn't genuine social equality. There are still people in society who misguidedly feel that members of the queer community are somehow less than other people. And that creates a series of problems, a series of issues, which mean that members of the LGBTQ plus community live and work in a different environment to members of the straight community. And as a result, they have to think about their investments in a different way. Well, yeah, I find that really interesting. And let's talk then, Paul, about potentially the power, then the impact of those investment decisions that are made by the community and by their allies more broadly. Is it fair then to say that those choices are are more powerful precisely because of that context of, of prejudice and of bias? I think potentially, yes. So one of the things that's been coming out in the research around uh, investing and, and investment decisions by the LGBTQ plus community is, for example, that a member of the queer community is less likely to have the capital to be an entrepreneur, to start up their own business, either because they have become alienated from their family, and sadly, that's a very common occurrence, disproportionately common for the LGBTQ plus community. And families are traditionally big supporters of people when they're entrepreneurs. I mean, you know, Bill Gates was helped out by his parents, for example. I mean, that sort of thing does does play a role. But also, uh, for various reasons, members of the LGBTQ plus community are less likely to own a home. And uh, obviously, owning your own home is a an asset, a form of security that's very often used to securitize borrowing for, for business investment. So it's harder for someone in the queer community to be an entrepreneur. And uh, that means that if there is a way uh, that that members of the community and allies can support through uh, investment entrepreneurialism in the LGBTQ plus community, there's a potential upside there, both obviously for the community, but also for the investors as you're you're investing in in an area which is otherwise somewhat capital deprived. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I did want to ask you a bit more about the complexity of that family picture. And you mentioned it there, Paul. I'm sure listeners will understand that, you know, prejudice 
endures within families as well as as without, but maybe they're not aware of how directly that bias can shape the financial future of those LGBTQ plus people. You mentioned about some of the ways that can manifest, but can you talk a bit more about the, how, how sort of far reaching that family bias can be in terms of shaping that longer term horizon? This, I think, is, is really a, a very significant challenge. So being queer is relatively unusual as a form of prejudice in, in the sense that you can be a target for prejudice from within your own family. And obviously, generally, with gender or race or ethnicity or religion, that's a lot less likely to be the case because other members of your family are likely to have uh, similar experiences to you. And this leads, I think, to uh, really three or four areas where you can have some quite long-term consequences. So the first is that we know, for example, that... Um, the chance of being homeless as a uh, an LGBTQ plus youth is about twice as high as if you're straight. And so right out at the start of, of your adult life, there is then uh, a risk of financial insecurity. And it may not be that you're living on the streets. It may be that you're sofa surfing or, or whatever else it is. But that, of course, is an enormous amount of insecurity. It makes it very, very difficult to get a job early on because you, you're, you're nomadic in your behaviour. You're less likely to start building up savings, things like that. It may damage your education as well, of course. So we have that whole aspect. And youth homelessness in the LGBT plus community is a is an enormous challenge, an enormous problem, which, which really does need more resources to be tackling it. Then you have the issue around you know, the, the lack of a family network supporting entrepreneurialism, supporting you financially as, as you go through your career. And that doesn't mean that you know, you've been thrown out of the home. It just means that, that there's a degree of family hostility and you're, you're not on the same wavelength as your parents. You know, they may be less willing to support some of your endeavours. Uh, there's also the issue of inheritance, that you know, if, if you've been alienated from your family, you are less likely to inherit from, from your parents. And that has an implication. You know, wealth transfer between generations is something that is important when considering investments and, and so forth and becomes a problem. But there's also the psychological impact that if you've got a family safety net, if you know that there is a safe home you can return to if it all goes wrong, then you may be more willing to take risks in your career, in your investment, in, in setting up a business or whatever, because you've got the existence of that safety net backing you. And that's enormously powerful. And one of the things which I think we, we underestimate is the saying, oh, you shouldn't be afraid to, to make mistakes. That's actually a, a luxury. That's a privilege to be able to make mistakes, that if you are suffering from a lack of a family safety net, the consequences of a mistake are a great deal higher than if you can, you know, not to be pejorative about it, but if you can go running back home to, to mummy and daddy having made a mistake, you've got a, a far different attitude. And this, I think, does shape behaviour, 
in the queer community. And it's it's potentially something, I think, which becomes more significant as we go through structural change in the global economy, when actually, you know, the rise of, of self-employment, the, the, the increase in entrepreneurialism is going to be quite a big part of this. The LGBTQ plus community could be at a disadvantage because of the risks to family ties that exist. Yeah, and you've alluded to a couple of points already about employment and sort of job security more broadly. And there's another shocking reality here. We began by saying what a sad state of affairs it is. In many countries, jurisdictions, LGBTQ plus people can lose their jobs, their livelihoods, simply because of their relationships. And that is a reality in so many different geographies. And there's a very immediate impact to that, clearly, Paul. But also there are a range of corollary factors, aren't there, that flow from that in this space around employment and around security more broadly, which are also telling here. Yes, this is a this is a very significant issue. So, I mean, in the United States, of course, until very recently, until the Title VII rulings last year, you could be fired just because you were dating somebody your boss didn't like. Now, that has, has shifted legally But you're still in a situation where about half the queer community in the United States are not out at work. Now, there's a reason they're not out at work. And that, I think, is very telling. Because, of course, you can be subject to prejudice without being fired for your sexuality. You might find it more difficult to get promoted. You might find it more difficult to get on the right training courses. And the fact that you can still be subject to prejudice in the workplace will affect your performance. And frankly, the fact that you can be uh, subject to prejudice in the workplace and choose to be closeted, choose not to be out at work, also will affect your performance at work because it puts an enormous mental strain on you. You're constantly disguising who you are, lying about who you are, thinking you know, very carefully before you use a pronoun to describe your partner and, and things like that, you know, editing your conversations with your colleagues. Well, that's very, very stressful. It takes a lot of resource to be constantly disguising who you are. And of course, that ends up also potentially affecting performance. So you've got a number of factors here where prejudice can cause members of the LGBTQ plus community to underperform and prejudice can deny members of the LGBTQ plus community the ability to to shine and to, to perform to the best of their ability. And all of that is going to affect job security. Even if you've got the legal guarantees in place, there are still things which make the queer community peculiarly vulnerable as members of the workforce. Paul, an aspect of the piece I found really interesting was the section about urban living. And again, you slightly touched upon this, talking about, you know, the nature of living arrangements or the increased likelihood of not having a, a permanent residence, especially for, for younger LGBTQ plus people. Talk to us just briefly about the urban living and this, this process by which many members of this community are almost necessarily drawn to those big urban environments. Well, this is a, a, a consequence of, of nature. You know, so what we're talking about with the LGBTQ plus community is roughly speaking 10% of the population. And we know this from veiled survey techniques and, and from the way the younger generation identify. But of course, that, that population is going to be evenly distributed. I mean, it's, it's a, a, an act of random genetics. But if you're part of a, a, a small community and you are then 10% of a small community, it can be very, very isolating. Now, technology has made this better. You, the the uh, podcast, social media apps you mean that you can, you can find an online community, but it can still be an extremely lonely existence. And so there is 
naturally a tendency, particularly for younger members of the queer community, to migrate towards large urban environments because simply there are more people around who have similar backgrounds to them. You know, you've got a better chance of dating somebody in a city than you have in a, in a very small rural community, for example. Now, as people get older, there, there has been some shift back towards rural living. So older members of the community may be less inclined to live in cities, but you're more inclined at a younger age. And then the problem with that, of course, is that if you're living in an urban environment, the cost of living is naturally higher. Generally speaking, urban lifestyle costs more than a rural lifestyle does. And so what you have is a community that is disproportionately based in an urban environment, disproportionately facing a higher cost of living. And that then affects their ability to accumulate savings, their ability to afford home ownership later on in life. This then becomes a particular problem. Paul, perhaps finally, we, we like to often wrap up by sort of looking at the the investment implications very I- immediately. And one thing I think is interesting to reflect on here is this idea of values-based investing. And we've discussed it often through the prism of sustainability, of course, on this programme previously. Part of the consideration and presumably when LGBTQ plus investors are drawing on all of these themes that you've talked about will be for them to align portfolios and decision-making with their own values, especially around things like equality, inclusiveness. Presumably, that's one of, if not the key takeaway in terms of how all of what we've been discussing manifests itself in terms of the actual investment decisions that are taken. I think so, yes. But, I mean, there is actually a very strong practical economic reason why you would be wanting to invest in companies that are more inclusive and diverse in their nature, because those companies do tend to outperform. And we know this. But also, of course, if you are part of the queer community, why would you want to invest in a company that considers you to be less than other people? I mean, why would you deliberately support a company that is not supporting you uh, uh, and giving you the same rights as as, uh, other members of society? The problem as ever with the issue of prejudice is that it's very difficult to sort of, you know, pull up a nice Bloomberg index of prejudice and, and you know, there's no single number that you can go to. There is the HRC index, which is, uh, which is helpful and is, is useful. Uh, and there are uh, various other indices around the world which can, which can give some kind of guidance, but it is, it's a struggle to get to. But I think as well that for, for members of the LGBTQ plus community and allies, there is the, the direct values-based investing, investing in a way which coincides with just treating people equally, which is a, a profitable strategy to pursue. But there is also, I think, the uh, potential to consider things like impact investing, uh, to consider you know, whether there are ways of uh, supporting small LGBTQ-run businesses that may otherwise uh, face a disadvantage in raising capital, whether there are ways of investing to help LGBTQ plus youth homelessness, for example. So there is a, a broader context as well. And as more and more people are becoming interested in impact investing alongside their regular investing, I think that there is a, a, a very strong story to be made for supporting the LGBTQ plus community, not just with your regular investing, but also in having a social impact as well. Paul Donovan, great to hear from you as always. And I should add that if you want to learn much more about these themes and indeed hear more from Paul himself, then do bear in mind that he has 
quite literally, written the book on this. Pride and Prejudice, the Luddites of the Fourth Industrial Revolution is out now, published by Routledge. Let's get some further insights on this space next from Salita Marcelli, Chief Investment Officer Americas for UBS Global Wealth Management. Salita, thanks for being with us. Salita, let me start with, well, with a similar question about the backdrop here that I put to Paul before. Even in an admittedly imperfect world, why should LGBTQ plus investors even have to think about investing differently? You know, while we have seen some impressive strides towards equality and inclusion in many places, as Paul mentioned, unfortunately, there isn't a country in the world where the LGBTQ plus community enjoys full social or legal equality. And, you know, because of this inequality and prejudice, the LGBTQ plus community faces a number of unique challenges. In addition, this community has unique needs that we believe should be reflected in their own investment approach. So, you know, to empower LGBTQ plus investors and families to achieve their goals and protect themselves against risks, we believe it is critical that they have a clear picture of their wealth and a robust financial plan that can be tailored to their own personal situation. Here at UBS, we use our Wealthway framework to accomplish these feats by organizing our financial life into uh, three you know, purpose-built investment strategies. So what are they? A liquidity strategy to help provide cash flow for short-term expenses, a longevity strategy to meet lifetime expenses, and thirdly, a legacy strategy for needs that go beyond uh, your own lifetime. We believe that it's possible to build a thoughtful investment strategy to address the financial aspect of the unique needs and challenges faced by members of this community. Another thing, Sita, that Paul talked about was the impact of family complexities and also you know, potential reasons for, for job insecurity within the LGBTQ plus community. I wonder if you could shine a little light on those for us and explain how these impact or how these could impact an investment approach. Both of these considerations could impact how an LGBTQ plus investor allocates funds between their liquidity, longevity, and legacy strategies. Our overall guidance is that if you're in your working years, your paychecks will typically cover your day-to-day expenses, but we generally recommend uh, still setting aside enough liquidity strategy assets to meet six to 12 months of spending needs to protect you in the event of a job loss or an unexpected expense. Now, if you're nearing or in retirement already, the liquidity strategy should be large enough to fund three to five years of the expenses that you need you know, to take from your portfolio to fund your lifestyle. So when members of the LGBTQ plus community do face the unfortunate situation of prejudice within their own families, they are likely unable to rely on their family members for support and may not have the option to move in with their you know, parents or ask for financial assistance. And if they feel unsecure about their job for any of the reasons Paul mentioned before, this could further add to their financial stress. This means that they may need to self-insure against the unexpected by building up a larger safety net through their liquidity strategy, generally comprised of cash, uh, high-quality bonds, and safe borrowing capacity that you can rely on in the event of a job loss or other risks like you know, a business downturn or unexpected expenses. 
Now, the downside, right, of a larger allocation to the liquidity strategy is that it could create a drag on investment returns, posing a headwind for LGBTQ plus investors looking to save and build their wealth. So to get the most out of your liquidity strategy while maintaining capital preservation, we recommend thinking of these assets in three tiers and investing according to these three tiers. So let me just quickly go through the tiers here. Tier one is your everyday cash. This is the cash you need for day-to-day expenses. Because you may need to access these funds without notice, we generally recommend keeping them in cash or other highly liquid cash alternatives. Tier two is savings cash. These are funds that you don't need immediately, but you are saving as an emergency fund or earmarking for specific short-term expenses like buying a car in the next six months. With this cash, you can earn a slightly higher rate of return in exchange for slightly less liquidity by putting your cash into savings accounts or money market funds. And then the last tier, the tier three, is investment cash. These assets are usually earmarked for expenses that are two to three years away. Uh, Investors can fund tier three by investing cash into a bond portfolio or investments that are liquid and perform well during a stock market drawdown. Now, setting aside some borrowing capacity, such as an untapped securities-backed loan or home equity loan, can also be effective for providing safety without creating as much of a drag on investment returns during the bull markets. Maybe uh, finally, Sita, I wanted to ask you a bit about sustainability. We often talk on this program about sustainable investing with with, with other colleagues. And often we've discussed that through the prism of uh, sustainability, of course. But part of the consideration, presumably for LGBTQ plus investors, is to maybe align their portfolio, their investment decision making with their preferences, with things that are important to them, these themes of equality, of inclusion. Is that something when we look at the investment makeup that uh, is striking here? Yeah, I mean, if investors want to move the needle on the challenges faced by the LGBTQ plus community and diversity and equality issues more broadly with portfolios, there are a variety of ways they can do so. Uh, First, of course, as Paul alluded to already, is by investing in companies that prove to be leaders in promoting diversity and equality. In fact, research shows that as an added bonus, companies leading the charge on these issues are typically more innovative and enjoy higher sales growth. And on the flip side, um, you can avoid those companies who have failed to move the needle on these issues in their own cultures. Now, I would say, secondly, while it can be harder to find LGBTQ specific investments, There are opportunities to invest in fixed income instruments or uh, private market investments that target closing the gap on diversity and equality issues in a broader sense. Some examples being affordable housing for uh, underserved communities or education and training. Um, These are some of the things that we're seeing. So, you know, I think these are some of the ways you can align your portfolio with with your values to drive change, specifically when it comes to issues around uh, diversity and inequality. Salita Marcelli. That brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle 24. You can listen again and find out more at monocle.com 
or catch up via your preferred podcast platform. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24.